This is Ryan Martin, the host of Psychology and Stuff. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, it's probably because you like psychology. And if you like psychology, you will love All the Rage, the podcast on anger and violence out of Phoenix Studios. On All the Rage, my co-host Chuck Ryback and I talk about everything from internet trolls to toxic masculinity to road rage. We bring you mad science, anger management tips, and tons of stories about people losing their cool. You can learn more about All the Rage and other Phoenix Studios podcasts at uwgb.edu forward slash podcast. All right, and welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast of the University of Wisconsin Green Bay Psychology Program. I'm Ryan Martin, chair of the psychology program and host of Psychology and Stuff, and we are at MPA still. This In is, the heart of the beast. Yes, this is, wow. That is, <laughs> oh, I like, no, I like the drama. Yeah, it is, it is. Bringing the drama. That was Dr. Regan Garong, who's helping me out with this intro. Um, Regan, you've been to MPA eight, nine, eight, nine times. times. Yes, awesome. Mm-hmm. Yep. What's why do you keep coming back? Uh, you know, it's it's the it's the excitement, and you can hear the excitement in the background. I mean, right now we are at poster session two, early in the game. There are eighty plus, or you know, it's first day. There are eighty plus posters around. There's good, cool conversations. Uh, we've you know we've already seen literally fifteen or twenty of our students excited. I've seen a lot of them picking up swag as well. Yeah, a so, lot of free pens. Yeah, that's yes, nice. yep. yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot of things. So that's that's it. I think it's. It, this is what we are. I mean, psychological science is about science and research. Mm-hmm. And I think too often in class and at school, we get caught up in grades and assignments mm-hmm. and forget the excitement of research. And this is about the excitement of research. There's no grades here. This is, mm-hmm. man, let's talk about the stuff that we're excited about. And that's why it's fun to be here. Right. Very good. So we are, uh, we're going to be doing uh, a couple of, uh, so this is part two of our episode. We just did a series last week on uh, all of the different research projects. We're about to do another group of research projects. I guess what, 21 total research projects? Yes, 21 total. Which is amazing. So uh, listeners, you should be following us on Facebook at Psychology and Stuff or on Twitter at Psych and Stuff. Also got to say thank you to Stitcher. My name is Bailey Immel. My research focuses on the interaction between uh, callous and unemotional traits in children and parenting behaviors and how that affects their social skills and how they relate to their peers. So callous and unemotional traits are a set of psychopathic characteristics that relate to low guilt, low empathy, uh, lack of remorse. And so we know that these kids have a hard time making and maintaining stable friendships and also that they experience um, different types of parenting behaviors from their parents, uh, particularly more negative parenting. So what I'm interested in is whether or not um, these types of parenting behaviors affect the relationship between these callous and emotional traits and children's social skills. So we collected data from 210 kindergarten children as part of a larger longitudinal study. Um, We collected data looking at their callous and unemotional traits using the inventory for callous and unemotional traits um, as reported by their parents. We collected uh, data on parenting behavior using the Alabama Parenting Questionnaire reported on by parents. And we collected data looking at their uh, social skills from both parents and teachers using the Social Skills Intervention System rating system. And what we found was that, uh, consistent with the existent literature, the uh, callous and unemotional traits relate uh, negatively to social skills. So the higher a child is on callous and unemotional traits, the weaker their social skills are. And this is true as reported by parents or by teachers. Um, However, when you take into account these different parenting behaviors, whether positive or negative, there's no effect on that relationship, meaning that 
this is being uh, totally driven by these callous and unemotional traits. Um, so this is really important when thinking about potential interventions in that um, looking at uh, training parents or talking to parents about their parenting behavior might not be the most efficacious intervention. Okay. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Um, is there any other further research that you're going to be doing with this or anything else you'd like to talk about? Um, yeah. So right now we're kind of thinking about potential uh, genetic uh, influences on callous and unemotional traits and how genetic uh, risk might play into this association. So um, hopefully getting that research going in the near future. Okay. All right. That's pretty much it, yeah. All right, awesome. Thank you so much, and congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm Megan Jamison. I am Marcia Gamble. Yeah, and we were studying the effectiveness of private room testing for students who have ADHD and LD. Um, so basically what we did is we created a reading comprehension test, because that's, that's what our focus was. Um, and we took a couple portions of the ACT and compiled those together. And then we had students either test in more of a group, like classroom setting, versus um, an individual setting where it was an 8 by 10 cubicle. They had a desk to sit at and take the exam with no distractions. Um, and what we actually found is that students who did have disabilities actually performed better in the individual setting, but they also performed equally to their peers, whether the peers were in the group or the individual setting, which is exactly what you want to see in an effective accommodation. So that was exciting for us because we actually had some significant yeah. results there. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, basically, like, piggybacking off of what she said, our results supported our hypothesis that students with ADHD or LD would perform better in individual group, in individual settings as opposed to group settings. Um, although we did kind of hit, like, a ceiling effect where I think our test was, like, too easy. And so, like, everybody who took it got, like, 90s and 80s and 100s. Um, but even with that, we still, like supported the hypothesis that students with ADHD or LD would test better in individual settings, proving that private room testing is an actually effective accommodation. And something also, we definitely do need more research on this because when we were doing our literature review, there's only one article that really addressed private room testing, so this is something that definitely needs to be replicated, and we definitely also need to give a harder exam so we can see how the scores are actually distributed. And then, too, looking at exams in other subject areas, like math, for one, or like secondary languages and science and stuff. Anything else you guys want to add or further research you've been working on? Um, not really. Well, not, <laughs> not at this not point. Quite really. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm Maria Holba. I'm Sophie Conlin. Um, and so the basis for our research is that um, so the two most common accommodations for college students with disabilities are extended time and testing in a separate room. And there are numerous studies on extended time, so many, and they basically all show that extended time helps everybody, not just students with disabilities. But there was only one major study that we could find on testing in a separate room, and they didn't test any students with disabilities, and they found that they did a little bit worse in a separate room. So. With so little information on this, what we did is we um, randomly assigned students to either a separate room or a group setting and administered a math test that was made up of questions from the math portion of a practice ACT. Um, and then after we 
administered the test. We gave them a survey that included basic demographic information as well as asking them to self-report any disabilities that they had. And so um, our results pretty much, our, our hope or our expectation was that students who had disabilities that practice, that took the exam in a private room would perform much better than students with disabilities who, um, who completed the exam in a group setting. But to our surprise, and this is an important finding, is that we actually discovered that students who had disabilities who took the exam in a private room did much poorer than students with disabilities who did the exam in a group setting. So that kind of begs the question as to why is this such a um, prominent and sort of loud effect accommodation on campus colleges all around. Um, very good chance that separate room testing is really effective for some people, but our results show that maybe it shouldn't be a go-to. It shouldn't be one of the most common accommodations. Yeah, right. And so, and our, our hope, you know, if we had more participants, more time, more researchers, more everything, is that we could isolate each disability and really figure out what disabilities, you know, in which they performed worse in a private room versus a group setting because for a learning disability or for dyslexia or for a reading disability, it might show up that they do much better in a private room if they're taking a reading exam compared to a math exam as if they're taking it in a private room. Um, so. as to why this is the um, answer. Our sort of mentality is that it's really intense to sort of ostracize and separate and isolate a student with a disability into a completely different room just for the vein of placebo or stereotype threat of getting this message ingrained in them that they have a disability and that they need some sort of accommodation in order to do as well as their peers. Um, so that's a guess as to why they potentially do that, as well as like just a group motivating factor of when you're when you're in a group setting, people feel sort of more stimulated and ready to perform than isolated. All right, yeah, great. Thank you so much. And Thank congratulations. You. My name is Jamie Page. I'm from Eastern Michigan University, and um, actually did study on maladaptive perfectionism and problem drinking in college students. So this actually began as a class project for research methods class. I started doing a literature review on perfectionism, which is what I was interested in most at that point, and um, found that there was a lot of research that had been done on eating disorders and perfectionism, but not a lot on coping, which I found interesting because perfectionism is commonly marked by anxiety, depression, and difficulty coping. So the few studies that had been done in this area had pretty conflicting results. So considering we have a primarily commuter school with a little bit older undergraduate age, um, we figured our campus this would be really great to replicate the study. Um, so we did data collection at two different points during a semester, last semester. Um, the first time was kind of at a normal point of stress in the semester, and the second point was during finals time. So hoping to capture that elevated level of stress. Um, and as for our findings, we actually found a number of interesting things. Um, we did find a significant relationship between socially prescribed perfectionism, so um, external expectations of perfection, and drinking to cope. Um, we also found an inverse relationship between perceived stress and drinking to cope, which we found really interesting. After we hashed it out at length, we think one of the possibilities might be that um, students actually perceive that their drinking is alleviating their stress. Um, so we had a, a fairly low return rate um, in the second 
data collection. Um, and so based on that and the fact that um, our mean age for a sample was 21 years old, um, we wanted to make sure that access to alcohol and recreational drinking wasn't a confounding issue. So we actually embarked on a second part of our study. Um, we received grant funding last December, actually. Um, we're wrapping up data collection now, looking at kind of the same general concept in graduate students. So higher age, hopefully higher, um, higher achieving, a little bit more perfectionism, um, and more life stressors. Okay. So. Yeah. Is there any um, further research you're planning on doing, or anything else you want to let us know about your research? Um, like I said, we're wrapping up the second part of our study right now. We haven't had a chance to dive into the data yet, um, but we will be starting a manuscript based on both studies at the end of the semester, um, where we'll really be kind of digging into the relationships, and hopefully we'll have a, a clear direction from there. Okay, all right, great. Thank you so much, and congratulations on the report. Thank you so much. Uh, so I'm Haley Benson, and our this research that I perform with my uh, mentor, Dr. Thomas Piasecki, is assessing the risk pathway between a genetic predisposition to drink excessively and actual alcoholic outcomes. Um, and so what we did was, in order to assess a person's low sensitivity, uh, we gave them the self-rated effects of alcohol form, which where they just assessed how many drinks it took them to experience certain effects associated with drinking, like blackout, dizziness, blurred vision. Um, and if you reported a higher amount of drinking, a higher amount of drinks required, then you were likely had a lower sensitivity to alcohol. Um, and so we, and then participants were also given the audit, which is just the alcohol use disorders identification test in order to identify what actual problematic outcomes they had because of their excessive drinking. And so the variable that we are studying was cognitive and emotional preoccupation, which is a subscale of the temptation restraint inventory. And this variable essentially assesses one's tendency to think about alcohol or temptation to think about drinking. And so we found that CEP significantly mediates the relationship between the SRE and the audit. So if one has a lower sensitivity to alcohol, you're more likely to think about drinking, which means you're more likely to actually have a problematic outcome. And so in addition to this, we also wanted to assess craving in daily life. And so we did a multi-regression analysis to assess this effect. And we, um, part, we monitored participants' craving using diary reports. So participants were given a diary for 21 days, and at, they would be given random prompts during non-drinking moments, uh, where they were asked at what level between 1 to 5 did they crave a drink. And we found that CEP was significantly and uniquely correlated to craving alcohol in daily life. So the tendency to just, just to think about drinking actually leads to more craving alcohol, um, which is very cool. <laughs> um, we also found that drinking to cope was slightly correlated with craving, but it was not correlated with any of our other analyses. And then um, real-world application, this is, now that we have a fully elucidated the risk pathway between a genetic trait and actual problematic outcomes, we can better target intervention and prevention techniques so that um, people get the help that they actually need rather than targeting other areas that haven't actually been affecting their drinking. Is there any other further research you're going to be doing with this or anything else? This is actually part of a larger study done by my mentor, Dr. Piasecki, in his lab um, at the University of Missouri. 
And uh, so this is just a small subscale of the ultimate research that just informs the risk pathway. Their ultimate study is um, assessing larger scale alcohol and tobacco addictions. And so they actually just received a grant to like take this further. So yeah, there's, there's going to be a paper coming soon. Awesome. Is there anything else you want to add or want to know about your research? I, well, this is a this is a pretty well correlate. Uh, this will correlate generalize well, I suppose. Uh, the age range is from 18 to people in their early 70s. Uh, though we do have primarily young adults, our population is a little biased just because it is primarily young adults because those are the heaviest drinking population, and this is also. Um, bias towards participants who were already drinkers and tobacco users. Okay. So. Great. Thank you so much and congratulations on your award. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming to check it out. Thanks. <laughs> My name is Adilene Osnaya. And I'm Jocelyn Lopez. All right. And can you tell us what your study is called and a little bit about it? So the title of our study is Understanding How Framing Racial Inequality Affects Racial Attitudes, um, and it's a replica replication study. Um, we replicated Powell um, 2005, which is a study that was aimed to see whether white framing or white privilege framing of inequality had some difference between black disadvantage framing. So really the um, objective of the study was to see how if we could, if the way we could frame racism affected, um, or the way we could frame privilege affected how people perceived racism or okay. racist attitudes. Mm -hmm. um, I think another thing that we were looking at was trying to see if framing inequality from a white privilege perspective and a black disadvantage perspective would induce collective guilt okay. and collective guilt would therefore like mediate their relationship between mm -hmm. the framing of inequality and self-reported racism. Okay, and what did you find? Um, we weren't able to replicate the findings, okay. unfortunately, or most of the findings. Um, you can't see this, but like from the graphs, um, we were able to see that collective guilt predicts racism, but there was no direct relationship between the way that you um, frame racial inequality and racism itself. Okay. And therefore, there was also no relationship or no mediating relationship between condition, collective guilt, and racism. Okay. So um, overall, like our results indicate that collective guilt predicts self-reported um, racism, but the way that you frame racial inequality quality doesn't induce collective guilt. So, yeah, that's sort of like... You're in a nutshell. In a nutshell. <laughs> yep. results, yes. And what are some, like, future research questions you would ask going off of this study? I think the main one would be trying to find a way to induce collective mm -hmm. guilt because the whole point of the whole study was to see if framing it differently yeah. would induce collective mm -hmm. guilt and then that would reduce racism. Mm -hmm. So, it looks like when you induce collective guilt, people tend to, like, report less racism. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to see, or for future directions, it will be good or essential to try to find a way mm -hmm. to induce collective guilt yeah. so we can actually see that mediated relationship. Do you guys have any ideas how to do that yet, or are you st are still in the process? I think we're still in the process yeah. of figuring that out. Mm -hmm. um, we really thought this was going to work, because when we, in the conditions themselves, when you frame it from a white privilege perspective, uh -huh. like we're very explicit about, you know, this is your privilege versus mm -hmm. like, they're, like they're not having this privilege. But like that didn't seem to work, so we're sort of like scratching our heads trying to think yeah. of what could possibly induce this collective mm -hmm. guilt. And yeah, we're still in the press of trying to figure that out. Awesome. But well, I wish you luck with that, and <laughs> thank you very you. much for being on the podcast. Oh, thanks. So I'm Bridges. I'm the principal investigator. 
I'm Hannah. I was her assistant. I'm Aaliyah. I was also one of Bridget's assistants. Um, so a little bit about our research. We were interested in looking at stereotype threat and its relation to sexual assault. Um, so we were really interested in it with like the Me Too movement and you know like the hashtag Yes All Women, but then like everyone you know not all men. And it was you know I think it's a really like tense situation in society today. Um, so we wanted to see if we could apply concepts from stereotype threat and specifically stereotype denial to what happens with sexual assault. Um, so we looked at how priming people's identities with stereotypes that either match their gender identity or did not affects how they respond to sexual assault. Uh, our findings, we did find something interesting that when primed with the stereotype for their own gender, people actually responded more aggressively. Um, our scenarios, we had a male perpetrator and a passive female victim. And when males were primed with the passive female victim and vice versa, females primed with the male perpetrator, they responded kind of neutrally across the board. But, um, but when they were primed with something that matched their identity, they were encouraged to distance themselves from their identity. So males were like, I'm not like that. And so they reacted very harshly towards an alleged male perpetrator. And then we presented a passive female victim stereotype, and women reacted very negatively towards the idea of women being passive victims. And so they were also very harsh with the male perpetrator. Um, and then something that we found that was kind of interesting was they were more... Um, compassionate towards the female victim as well. So it didn't just affect how they reacted towards the, the perpetrator, it also affected how they reacted towards the victim. Also, another thing that we thought was really interesting was um, our data can really help to add significance to the Me Too movement and the hashtag not all men because we think that this is a way of um, stereotype distancing. So men, when they say hashtag not all men, they're kind of thinking like, oh, I can identify with someone like that, but I don't want to. So this is their way of saying like, no, I'm not like that. So when men responded more um, aggressively to the perpetrator, that was kind of like them pushing away from the stereotype that they actually could identify with. I think one of the things that really inspired this research was the Brock Turner case. Because I think we were all kind of like outraged and disgusted and like, how could this happen? Um, so our research kind of lends insight into that because when you have a like straight white male judge giving a judgment to another straight white male, they share those identities. And those identities are hard to remove yourself from. So it kind of helps to explain it, even if it doesn't excuse it. It helps us like provide more of an understanding of why we react the way that we do. Because in order to correct our actions, we have to understand why we're doing them, and then we can move forward to more appropriate responses. That's great. So are you guys planning on doing any further research with this? Um, you are, kind of. Kind of. I'm actually running my own study right now looking at um, reverse sexism. Um, I'd love to pick up something and incorporate more of the stereotypes that go along with it. Right now I'm just using sexual harassment examples. I have like a verbal condition and a physical condition and the only thing I change is the gender of who's initiating the harassment. And I'm seeing so far that um, when males initiate it, people rate it as way more inappropriate than when a female initiates it. And I think that that's standard, but also interesting. Right. Is there anything else you guys want to add about your method or anything else you found with your research? I just think it's interesting and it tells us a lot about like where we're at now and gives us a direction for knowing where we can go in the future. Okay. Um, it's a good foundational starting place. Right. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much thank and congratulations you. on your award. Thanks.
I'm Kevin Summers. I'm from Miami University. Um, and we started off this research because low SES individuals um, receive less intensive pain treatment than high SES individuals. Um, so we were investigating why this discrepancy might exist. We looked at uh, perceptions of hardship and perceptions of pain sensitivity. Um, so in our first study, we had people view, view low and high SES targets and rate their pain sensitivity. And we found that people rated low SES individuals as feeling less pain than high SES individuals. Um, and we thought this might um, be mediated by hardship. So the idea that overcoming adversity fosters resilience. Um, so we had people rate the hardship, perceived hardship and perceived uh, sensitivity of low and high SES targets. And we found a significant mediation such that low SES individuals were perceived as having lived a harder life and therefore feel less pain. Uh, we thought this might have downstream consequences for treatment. Um, and we found that low SES individuals were actually rated as requiring less pain treatment than high SES individuals given the same injury. Um, so we investigated an overall mediation uh, between target SES and treatment decision um, and we found that low SES targets were perceived as having lived a harder life and therefore felt less pain and thus required less pain treatment. Um, we wanted to see if medical providers held the same biases as lay individuals. So we recruited 50 medical providers and they rated the pain sensitivity and pain treatment for low and high SES targets. And we found similar to lay people, medical providers uh, required or perceived low SES individuals as feeling less pain and therefore requiring less pain treatment. Um, lastly, we investigated this uh, accuracy of this stereotype. We used uh, self-report and behavioral data. Um, so across our all of our studies, we did a meta-analysis of our participants' self-rated pain and their self-rated SES, and we found that correlation was always negative, and uh, meta-analysis revealed that lower SES individuals actually reported feeling greater pain sensitivity. Uh, our behavioral measure we applied a pressure algometer to the fifth metacarpal, and we found that participant SES was positively correlated with uh, pain threshold and pain tolerance, such that uh, low SES individuals were able to withstand less pain. So overall, not only is the stereotype inaccurate, but it's opposite of reality. Um, yeah, we, we've also are looking now at um, judging pain, pain detection, so looking at um, real and high SES individuals and whether you judge them to be in real or fake pain, and we inve we're investigating that as another explanation of possibly why low SES individuals may uh, receive less intensive pain treatment than high SES individuals. Thank you. Congratulations on your award. Thanks.
right, that does it for this episode, this special live episode from the Midwestern Psychological Association Conference. Um, so I've got the interviewers here with me, Sophie Seeland, thank you, Sophie, Katrina Weber, Samantha Elderfeeser. No. <laughs> Sammy Elderfeeser. Yes. Uh, um, and uh, I want to hear from you all. What was your favorite part? The conference is wrapping up. What was your favorite part of the conference? I guess I can start. So I'd say my favorite thing is seeing undergrads like us presenting this amazing research. I think it's super hopeful and really cool to have all these people who have the same interests as I do in one place. Mm-hmm. And on a less serious note, Sawa jumping for the photo was amazing. <laughs> so that was pretty great. Yes. I agree. So. Um, I would have to say my favorite thing was specifically like seeing all the different UWGB research because obviously I know the stuff that goes down in Sawa's lab, but not so much some of the other research. That was just really cool to get to see stuff that comes from our own university. Yeah. And I... Sorry, I just want to say, there's there's like 30 projects from UW-Green Bay here, and you're right, you know, I'm I'm not familiar with a lot of those, Um, and so there's a lot of really good stuff. I also have to throw a shout out for, I thought the Data Blitz was really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to the one this morning and really thought it was great, so, and we may be robbing that idea for next year, actually, for for something similar on campus. Yeah, the one yesterday was really cool, too. I bet, I bet. I saw Anna, our students, yesterday. It was Facebook. Facebook Live. So if you don't know what we're talking about, check out UWGB Psychology on Facebook where there's a couple of those Morgan out also there. did one this morning. Yep. Yeah, yep. Morgan's was great. That yeah, was really was cool. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I just had a lot of fun seeing all the different research and being able to interview all of the people who got the awards. Yes. Great. Very good. So thank you to uh, the three of you once again for doing the interviews. That was a big time commitment. A lot of people to talk to meant uh, chasing people around to their posters. (laughs) Thank you, Sophie, for organizing all that, keeping track of who we were interviewing. Um, and I want to say thank you to our guests. Um, all of these, what, 20-some researchers. Yeah, 21 people. Tw- 21 researchers who uh, took time out of their posters to talk with us, which That's is great. great. So, yeah. um, and keep up the good work. And as always, want to thank Stitcher. Want to thank <laughs> our uh, podcast artist, Kimberly Vlees. Want to thank you, Sophie, our intern. Um, and I want to thank our producer, Kate Farley. But the other thing I want to shout out, we, are, we have a special live episode coming up. Um, we're going to take it uh, much less seriously, I think, for an episode on pop culture and psychology. It's going to be a live episode. You can come to it on May 2nd at 5.15. Yep. Uh, I don't know the room, but you can find it's that out. Mac. It's in Mac Hall on yep. campus. During the Psychi and Psyched meeting. Yes, so it's going to be fun. I think there's going to be food. Um, yes. And then also... Um, it, I think we're going to try and live stream that event too. So people who don't live in town, if you want to watch it via psychology and stuff on Facebook, you can do that. So now that I've said that on air, we you have, have to, to do it. Yeah. yeah. yeah so no, we yeah, have to. we'll figure it out. So yeah, we will. thanks for tuning in and thanks for all the great work. Yeah.